You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just before dark, when we could tell by the sound of the musketry fire and by the constantly advancing yells of the charging foe that he was getting near the guns in our front, General Philip St. George Cook, commanding the cavalry, rode to our front. I was on the right of the front line of the first squadron, and I heard his order to Captain Whiting, commanding the five companies of our regiment that were present on the field. He said, Captain, as soon as you see the advancing line of the enemy rising the crest of the hill, charge at once, without any further orders, to enable the artillery to bring off their guns. General Cook then rode back around the right of our squadron. Captain Whiting turned to us and said, Cavalry, attention, draw a saber. Then added something to the effect, Boys, we must charge in five minutes. Almost immediately the bayonets of the advancing foe were seen, just beyond our cannon, probably not fifty rods from us. Captain Whiting gave the order, Trot! March! and as soon as we were fully underway, he shouted, Charge! We dashed forward with a wild cheer, in solid column of squadron front, but our formation was almost instantly broken by the necessity of opening to right and left to pass our guns. So furiously were our brave gunners fighting that I noticed this incident. The gun directly in my front had just been loaded. Every man had fallen before it could be fired. As I bore to the right to pass the gun, I saw the man at the breech, who was evidently shot through the body, drawing himself up by the spokes of the wheel and reaching for the lanyard, and I said, He will fire that gun. So I kept to the right, and almost immediately felt the shock of the explosion. Then I closed in to reform the line, but could find no one at my left, so completely had our line been shattered by the musketry fire in front. I rushed on, and almost instantly my horse reared upright in front of a line of bayonets, held by a few men upon whom I had dashed. My horse came down in front of the line, and ran away partly to our rear, perfectly uncontrollable. I dropped my saber, which hung to my wrist by the saber knot, and so fiercely tugged at my horse's bit as to cause the blood to flow from her mouth, yet I could not check her. The gun I had passed, now limbered up, was being hauled off at a gallop. I could direct my horse a little to right or left, and so directed her toward the gun. As she did not attempt to leap the gun, I gained control of her, and at once turned about and started back upon my charge. After riding a short distance, I paused. The firing of artillery and infantry behind, and of infantry in front, was terrific. None but the dead and wounded were around me. Private William H. Hitchcock, 5th U.S. Cavalry, Cook's Cavalry Division. General Elzey of the Maryland line has been already engaged and badly cut to pieces. 
They are ordered to retire, having failed to carry the breastworks in our immediate front. As they pass to the rear, the effect upon our men is most trying to our nerves. They are literally cut to pieces. The wounded and bleeding, resting upon and assisted by their friends, are slowly making their way to the rear, having left the prostrate forms of more than half their number at the breastworks they failed to carry. Forward was the order, as it floats out like the sound of a bugle upon the air and reverberates up and down the line. Fix bayonets! Charge! Give them the bayonet, my brave boys! The noble form of John B. Hood, our brigade commander, is moving here and there, up and down the line, cheering his men on. We are at the breastworks. Over we go. Our Texas boys are now in it to their heart's content. The enemy's line is broken. The rebel yell resounds up and down the line, carrying dismay and demoralization to the enemy's ranks. The battery of seven guns on that hill in our front are mowing down the 4th Texas like grain before the scythe. Take that battery, boys. Like a flash of lightning, the Texans move forward upon the seven-gun battery. The gunners double-shot it and sweep our ranks at close range, cutting down our boys as they move toward it. But nothing daunted, with an impetuosity that cannot be portrayed by human pen, on they move. The very mouths of these death-dealing machines are reached as the dying gunner fires his last shot into our ranks and is shot down at his gun. The battery is in our hands. Its destructive work ceases. The brave men who a moment ago were working these guns are now cold in death. The horses are all killed or badly wounded. We wheel left to meet the 4th New Jersey Regiment of Federals, some 700 strong. It's hilt to hilt, clubbed guns, and short work before the struggle is over. They surrender. Private John W. Stevens, 5th Texas Infantry, Hood's Brigade. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode number 159 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. Last week we looked at the first two battles of the Seven Days Campaign, the Battle of Oak Grove, which took place on June 25th, and the Battle of Mechanicsville, which took place on Thursday, June 26th, 1862. As we said last time, Robert E. Lee, despite the failure of his attack at Mechanicsville, had, at a stroke, wrested Battlefield Initiative from George B. McClellan when the Union commander ordered Fitzjohn Porter's V Corps to abandon its position behind Beaver Dam Creek and withdraw four miles to the east to establish a new line behind Boson Swamp. It turned out that the precise moment Little Mac abandoned his goal of capturing Richmond came at around 1 a.m. on the morning of June 27th when he ordered Porter to fall back to Boson Swamp. Earlier in the evening, McClellan had sent positively bubbly messages to both his wife and to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. But after midnight, Little Mac's overcautious nature reasserted itself as his fears rushed in, and he completely changed his tune. Reports coming in that night said that Stonewall Jackson had not been the victim of the day's fighting, as McClellan had originally believed, but rather Jackson was instead on Porter's right flank, ready to descend into the rear of the Fifth Corps in the morning. 
and so Porter would have to be pulled back to avoid Jackson sweeping down and cutting him off. But even though Porter would have to be pulled back, McClellan still had a decision to make. Should he try to protect and maintain his supply line north of the Chickahominy, keeping alive his campaign to overwhelm Richmond with his big siege guns, which required the railroad line for their transport, Or should he merely hold Jackson and the other Confederates at bay north of the Chickahominy while launching an attack toward Richmond south of the river? Fitz John Porter and other Union generals recommended McClellan adopt the latter course. Porter, correctly seeing Lee's attack as the desperate gamble that it was, encouraged Little Matt to send just a few more units north of the river to help him hold the Confederates in check, and then used the rest of the army to attack with every bit of strength south of the Chickahominy to capture Richmond. But that course of action would have required a less fearful and more flexible-minded commander than George McClellan. It seems that when McClellan left the 5th Corps headquarters that night, he had already decided there was a third option, and that he was going to take it, although he didn't explicitly say so to Porter. Instead, McClellan impressed upon Porter, quote, the absolute necessity of holding the ground until arrangements over the river can be completed, end quote. Porter later recalled that he thought McClellan was telling him the rest of the army was going to attack Richmond, even if the Fifth Corps must be sacrificed to allow it. And so Porter believed he was being asked to hold at all costs north of the Chickahominy at Boson Swamp so that McClellan could launch the potential war-winning attack south of the river. In this mistaken belief, Porter confidently assured Little Mac, quote, I shall hold it to the last extremity. The reality, however, was that McClellan never contemplated making the assault that others urged on him. He instead persisted in his claim that he faced an overwhelming force of the enemy and began planning to save his army. When he returned to the south side of the river, he informed his staff that the army was retreating, though he didn't share that decision with his field generals. McClellan had already ordered Porter to fall back to Boson Swamp, but Little Mac knew it was too late that night to withdraw all of Porter's corps south of the Chickahominy, and it would be impossible for Porter to cross the river in the face of the expected Confederate attacks the next day, Friday. So McClellan wanted Porter to hold off the rebels for one more day and then retreat to the south side of the Chickahominy on Friday night. And so Little Mac wouldn't be sending units north of the Chickahominy to to defend his supply line, nor would he launch an attack south of the river. Instead, he would abandon his supply line to White House Landing and give up on his hopes of pounding Richmond into rubble with his big siege guns. Unnerved by the unexpected aggression and audacity displayed by the Confederates at Mechanicsville, McClellan ordered all the supplies that could be moved from White House Landing to be loaded onto ships and transported to Harrison's Landing on the James River on the south side of the peninsula. And so McClellan wouldn't move north of the Chickahominy to protect White House Landing, as Robert E. Lee expected. But instead, Little Mac would retreat by the shortest route due south to the James River, where his army would be under the protection of the heavy guns of the U.S. Navy's gunboats. It's interesting that the beginning of the Seven Days Campaign was characterized by completely opposite interpretations by the opposing commanders. 
Lee had correctly read his opponent as being defensive-minded and cautious, while McClellan had completely misread Lee's boldness and willingness to take risks. Contrary to Little Mac's earlier prediction, Lee had ventured upon a bold movement on a large scale, and McClellan refused to do likewise, even though any determined offensive push on his part may have taken Richmond and perhaps ended the war. But displaying such initiative was completely contrary to George B. McClellan's nature. It's ironic that Robert E. Lee's first offensive battle, which had been a confused and colossal failure on par with Joe Johnston's Seven Pines debacle, was all it took to drive McClellan into a full-scale retreat. So much for Little Mac's earlier boast that he preferred Lee to Johnston. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The position to which Fitzjohn Porter retreated was a formidable one. About four miles east of Beaver Dam Creek was another boggy stream known to the locals as Boson Swamp. It was a sluggish watercourse that offered a barrier to cross from the west or north. Behind the creek, the land rose sharply to a plateau about a mile and a half wide. The plateau fell off to the south to the Chickahominy. On top of the plateau were three houses, the Watt House, the McGeehee House, and the Adams House. Porter established his headquarters at the Watt House. 39-year-old Fitzjohn Porter was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. His uncle, David Porter, was a Navy hero of the War of 1812, while his cousin, David Dixon Porter, was an officer in the U.S. Navy and would become one of the leading Civil War admirals. Fitzjohn Porter graduated from West Point in 1845 and was commissioned in the artillery. He saw service during the Mexican War, winning promotion to first lieutenant and two brevets, and sustaining a wound at the storming of Chapultepec. He then returned to West Point to teach cavalry and artillery tactics, and serve as adjutant to Superintendent Robert E. Lee. 
Porter then transferred to the Adjutant General's office with the staff rank of captain, and in 1857 served as adjutant during Albert Sidney Johnston's operations against the Mormons in Utah. In early 1861, when the secession crisis exploded, Porter was entrusted with a mission to remove federal troops and materiel from Texas and acquitted himself well. In May 1861, he was appointed colonel of the new 15th U.S. Infantry Regiment. Porter was appointed Brigadier General of Volunteers in August 1861. After a brief stint commanding troops in the Shenandoah Valley, Porter was summoned to Washington by McClellan, and in short order Little Mac made him a division commander in the Army of the Potomac. A favorite of McClellan's, in May 1862, Porter was named commander of the Fifth Corps. When Porter established his headquarters at the Watt House on the plateau above Bosun's Creek, the 77-year-old widow Sarah Watt was compelled to leave for her own safety. Locals refer to the plateau as Turkey Hill, and that's how it was listed on Confederate maps. But incredibly, none of the Confederate maps showed the Bosun Swamp with its brush and tree-lined stream. Instead, the maps, including the one used by Robert E. Lee, only showed Powhide Creek, which was about a half mile west of Bosun Swamp. The farm of Dr. William Gaines was at the midpoint of Powhide Creek, a mile and a half north of the Chickahominy, while his mill lay another mile further north. It was across this land that Lee expected to encounter the Federals on Friday, and since the doctor was the largest landholder in the area, the Confederates still named the ensuing battle Gaines's Mill, even though the actual fighting would take place over a mile southeast of the mill. Porter established his defensive line facing west and north. He placed the division of George Morrell behind the swamp facing west and the division of George Sykes facing north. Both were a few hundred yards in front of and wrapped around the Watt House, as one author put it, in the shape of an archer's bow a mile and three-quarters long, with Sykes' line extending to nearly a mile east of the Watt House. The Federals were arrayed in two lines, one near the creek and another halfway up the slope, while artillery formed a third line at the crest of the plateau. Since George McCall's division had done much of the fighting the day before at Beaver Dam Creek, Porter replaced it in, placed it in reserve. Porter had 17 batteries of artillery, totaling 96 guns, available to repel any Confederate assault, while William Franklin's 6th Corps, south of the Chickahominy, had three batteries of long-range guns able to lob shells across the river and assist in disrupting any enemy attack coming against Boson Swamp from the west. All told, Porter had nine brigades and a little more than 27,000 men to hold off whatever Lee threw against him. Porter expected reinforcements, and in fact, some were on their way in the form of a division of Franklin's Corps. But as the division, commanded by Henry Slocum, reached the bridge to cross the Chickahominy, McClellan ordered it to stop and return to its previous position. Although Little Mac knew an attack was coming north of the river, he was suddenly afraid the rebels were about to launch an assault south of the Chickahominy as well. Beginning soon after daylight on Friday morning, reports started coming in to McClellan's headquarters from all four federal corps south of the river that the Confederates seemed to be preparing for an attack. 
Since little Mac had already convinced himself that this was likely, the warnings that morning only confirmed his fears. But the fact is, all the Union commanders were hoodwinked by the theatrical Magruder. Prince John was very anxious and hadn't slept a wink that night, fearing that McClellan would wake up to the fact that only a thin line of Confederate troops south of the Chickahominy blocked his path to Richmond. Lee's lack of success at Mechanicsville and subsequent order to Magruder to hold at all costs had only increased Prince John's anxiety. And so on Friday morning, he shifted troops back and forth and created a commotion of shouted orders and ostentatiously beating drums to try to keep the Yankees off balance as long as possible. Thanks to Magruder's deception south of the Chickahominy, a worried McClellan spent the day paralyzed, waiting to see what Lee would do to him. Robert E. Lee had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do to McClellan's army, but it first required making up for all the mistakes of the previous day. The first thing Lee did, which was something he should have done the afternoon before, was to send an aide to find the missing Stonewall Jackson and his valley command. Shortly after first light on Friday morning, the rebel pickets noticed that the Yankees had abandoned their line behind Beaver Dam Creek. As this news quickly filtered up the Confederate chain of command, commanders immediately set their men in motion to follow the retreating Federals. Lee's offensive was a day behind schedule, but nevertheless, it could still be successful if all went according to his plan today. But all would not go according to Lee's plan on Friday, the 27th, quite simply because Lee's plan was wrong. Lee completely misread what McClellan intended to do. Lee had launched his campaign north of the Chickahominy, believing that McClellan, when attacked north of the river, was going to fall back on his supply line and protect it. When looking at his map, Lee determined that the best defensive position behind Beaver Dam Creek was at Powhite Creek, three and a half miles east, where the Gaines Farm and Mill stood. And so Lee expected the Federals to fight at Powhite Creek, just as they had done on Thursday at Beaver Dam Creek, that is, lining their troops and artillery behind the creek facing west. As a result of that expectation, Lee intended to do on Friday what Jackson's late arrival the day before had prevented, that is, get around the Federals' right flank and come in behind their line, forcing the Yankees to retreat. As they retreated, Longstreet and A.P. Hill would push them onto the waiting brigades and batteries of Jackson and D.H. Hill. To that end, Lee was sending Jackson and D.H. Hill to Old Cold Harbor, which he expected to be well beyond the Federals' right flank. But Lee hadn't counted on McClellan abandoning his supply line and giving up on his grand campaign to capture Richmond so quickly. And Lee didn't count on the very capable Fitzjohn Porter hunkering down on high ground behind a swampy stream that Lee didn't even know existed. Robert E. Lee, therefore, on Friday, June 27th, was putting into motion a plan based on faulty assumptions and poor maps, a plan that was flawed the moment he conceived it. As a result, Lee would have to spend the rest of the day revising his strategy on the fly in real time. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is 
Seven Days Battles, 1862, Lee's Defense of Richmond by Angus Constam. This is another title in Osprey Publishing's campaign series. It's not the first and certainly won't be the last book that we recommend from that series. Seven Days Battles, 1862 follows the same format as the other books in the series, and it's a good introduction to the campaign for those who are unfamiliar with the Seven Days. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also, if you head over to the website, you can see that we just released the first of what looks like it will be three members episodes in which we're going to look at the life story of Jeb Stewart and then talk about his famous ride all the way around the Army of the Potomac in June 1862. So that's for the members of the Strawfoot Brigade, and two new recruits who signed up this past week were Jeffrey and Matt. So thanks, guys. And thanks also to Maurice Kay over in the UK for his donation to the podcast this past week. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week when we look at all of the action at the Battle of Gaines's Mill. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.